1: We heard some pretty grim predictions from the company, from the country's top doctor yesterday. The most recent modeling shows that in the short term, the spread of the virus will escalate. And unless we collectively smarten up, there could be upwards of nearly 156,000 cases and 9,300 deaths by October the 2nd. Uh, so what does collectively smartening up involved and what are the increased dangers for us? What do we have to do? Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 740 And now let's go to Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. And Dr. Ray watt An epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Hello and welcome. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Okay, so first of all, these are modeling numbers, which uh, means they are uh, speculation to a certain extent. They are worst case scenario, correct? Correct.
2: Yes, I could take that question. I think it is a worst case scenario. But it's important that we see a bad case scenario so that we will smarten up. People need to understand that the threat is real. It may not be as dire as projected, but that is the situation if we don't do the appropriate thing.
1: Uh, I just want to uh Dr Furness maybe you can help me clarify a number that I read here from uh from uh, I got on the internet the 9300 deaths I thought we already have about 9200 so another 100 um I guess that would mean another 100 in in uh, a week or so
3: Every country undercounts deaths, so the true toll of COVID is bound to be much higher in Canada. So it's really hard to know what to do with those numbers. But we are also, it's important, we're, we're getting better at treating COVID, uh, and, and so we can expect fewer deaths. However, death is not the best or the only way to measure the impact of COVID. We're seeing that COVID <coughs> is causing brain damage in lots of people. They're not dead, but they're harmed, and they're harmed permanently in serious ways. So we really do want to think about Covid is being harmful, not just lethal.
1: Okay. Yes. Okay. So it's it's harmful, not lethal. We've we've seen uh, heart damage, uh, lung damage, even in younger people. And the problem now appears to be younger people who want to have social interaction. Right.
3: No question. And I I do see a strong link between having restaurants open. Uh, for in restaurant dining, where it, the people at risk are not the customers but the servers, and they 're in their twenties, and there is a party culture among servers and this is this is we, we really have to make this stop, and we have to make that stop now
1: so you 're saying that restaurant servers are partying
3: not everyone, but i 've certainly talked with enough servers to know that that 's a common culture yes
1: hm um, uh... Dr. Furness, I mean, this is, uh, I guess, a bit of a, you know, fungible question, but, you know, we've heard our public officials kind of scolding younger people. Uh, that tone doesn't really seem to be working, does it?
3: I don't think that's ever worked in public health. What you really want to do is set up what is normal, what is good, what is healthy, and get people to lead by example and point to the positive and orient toward conformity. Young people do like to conform. They don't like having their fingers wagged at them. In fact, really nobody does. And... uh, Public health physicians tend not to do that. That tends to be politicians doing that. And yeah, uh, it, I think it's it's really, really important to, to understand that once you wag your finger, people stop listening, and then they stop being able to listen. So messaging is incredibly important with every age group and, and with that age group in particular.
1: Okay. Uh, so, uh, Ray, you've pointed at in, in inside dining. There's been patio dining. Uh, what I see is that <clears throat> i don 't think it 's very likely that we 'll see you know wholesale shutdown of the economy. The restaurant sector, which employs uh, i think probably across the country hundreds of thousands of people, is one of the hardest hit i i don 't really see that being shut down do you
2: no i don 't because people still order food. Every one of us does it, Um, but I think the restaurant sector has to pivot and change their delivery model. Inside dining has to be diminished and not outright eliminated, but as well, of course, bars and strip clubs, and these are obvious things that need to be done. Restaurants have the opportunity, as opposed to, you know, strip clubs, to offer their service in a different modality that reduces, if not outright eliminates risk. I'm talking, of course, of delivery and takeout. It's a whole new world and they need to adapt.
1: Uh, Right. Uh, They can do that, but, you know, that may not keep them afloat.
2: That's exactly right. That's where government has to step in and provide the supports, for those that cannot stay afloat, and also incentives and disincentives for appropriate behavior. We need to engage the economists in this a bit more. They're the masters of incentivizing behavior, and, you know, epidemiologists were struggling to catch up with that kind of thinking, but that's what it comes down to now. We're, we're in the, the part of the game of convincing and compelling people and businesses and organizations to behave a certain way, so we have to tangle carrots and threaten with sticks.
1: I have a question. So we're in stage three now. And uh, people have started, you know, uh, loosening up on their own restrictions. And I know that personally, I'm questioning certain things that I haven't done yet. Uh, So I've never had dined inside a restaurant, not sure I'll do that. But I question, wow, should I get personal services that may be shut down again soon, like going to a chiropractor or a massage therapist? Uh, and we were talking to some other epidemiologists yesterday, and they said, you know, fellow doctors were, were kind of making sure to get a haircut this week, not next week.
2: It's, yeah, I mean, I'll take that one. It's... Um... Of course, that's the danger of putting a deadline on the end of things. People rush to get the thing before that deadline occurs, and so you risk having a surge of activity that's not healthy. That's human behavior. That's natural human behavior. So how do we um, curtail that? Well, we have have to have a way of tapering off that behavior. Maybe stage the closings. You know, start with uh, inside dining of a certain number and then stage it down to zero over the course of two weeks. Um, But that's where the creativity of the policymakers have to be expressed.
1: Mm -hmm. And so is there anything else, Dr. Furness, that you would like to see basically shut down uh, to greet the second wave?
3: Any situation where people are indoors with each other not wearing masks, I think that's we just need to draw the line right there. If the people are in your bubble, fine. But your bubble needs to be tiny. It needs to be small. It needs to shrink. And anytime you're indoors with anyone else, we've got to be wearing a mask. I think if we all were able to do that, that would be great. My biggest fear, and I see this across all age groups, and I hate to say it, the older folks are, the more I see it, is they're saying, I'm being careful, but then they're telling me about their activities and I'm watching what they do and they're not. So So, there's a gap between self-perception of saying, yes, I'm a careful person, I'm being careful, but the rules are confusing and there's been one, you know, one loosening leads to another, leads to another. So I hear about sleepovers and large gatherings for, for high holidays and so on and so forth. Those aren't, safe. And if to say that I'm being a safe person and I'm doing it safely, no, actually, that really all has to stop. Really?
1: Nobody I know had a large gathering of any gathering at all. I mean, most people I know said their parents wouldn't even go to their house unless it was outside. Well, that's
3: good to hear. That Uh, is good to hear. But the the case counts that we're seeing every day suggest that there's a lot of the population that probably fits what I just said more than what you just said. And that's what's worrying.
1: Okay. Um, I have a question that I am trying to follow up on, and it regards testing, and there are huge backlogs in testing. Uh, And I've heard, uh, and I'm trying to confirm, that there's a backlog that might be happening in hospitals because older patients, uh, maybe from LTC, are, are getting tested, and they have to be kept there until there's a result, and that takes days.
2: Oh, I don't know if that's the case. Um, it might be true, but I'm not having information about that. The The testing backlog has to do with an insufficient testing capacity across the board. We need to really surge that capacity forward, which is why we have calls right now from doctors asking for lesser asymptomatic testing. And Colin and I have had conversations about this offline, about whether that's the right strategy. But we have to invest in better tests, more tests, faster tests, and on-site tests in order to that prevent this backlog from being detrimental.
1: Well, yeah, but it's, it's also lab capacity. I mean, I, w- I was just talking to someone in, in a long-term care institution. They said six days for their tests. They're, they do have on-site testing, six days to get a result.
3: But there is a technique called pooled testing that is available and used elsewhere where you mix you mix samples together. You can do eight or maybe ten together at the same time. And if you get a negative test, you're done. If you get positive, then you have to do them individually. That could increase our testing capacity by close to an order of magnitude. And we haven't done it. And we haven't done it because we've got the wrong strategy. In other words, the province doesn't see that we need this extra capacity to do exactly the sorts of things that Ray was just listing, proactive testing, risk-based testing. We have 170,000 teachers that need testing frequently, and we're not able to do that. So we could. We could adopt adopt pool testing, and we wouldn't have to open a new lab or hire another person. So we could, but we aren't.
1: Okay. And uh, then final question, because we uh, are running out of time. So... uh, Part of the the backlog, uh, what I'm hearing is that if you have a child who has to be tested to get back into school because they've got a runny nose, sometimes, often, the whole family shows up and they all want tests and they aren't turned away.
2: Okay, well, that's the big one. And right now all the doctors are saying that should stop because that's eating up capacity time. Really, if the kid ends up being positive, then yes, then the family becomes, uh, first order contacts that must then be tested. But until the child tests positive, they do not qualify as first order contacts. So it eats up testing capacity and it's probably not the strategy right now. But as I'm going to reinforce our statement, increase testing capacity so we can offer that service in the future.
1: Okay. Uh, I'm sure there is going to be a lot more on this. Thank you so much, Dr. Colin Furness and Dr. Ray Dionandon. Appreciate your time.
0: Our pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.